Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week again, and we are going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, so let us get into it. Now, if you've listened before, you may know that one of my favorite subjects to talk about is animal cognition. And so let's start out with a recent article from Scientific American. Um, And so it reminded me that there's a class of animals, and we'll actually talk about a couple of them this time around, that we don't generally think of as being all that smart. And this first one is fish. So while marine mammals and cephalopods are known to be often quite intelligent, not much is generally said about the true fishes. So the article draws from a book entitled What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. And it sounds really interesting. I think I will definitely be trying to get a copy of it at some point. So let's talk about smart fish. Our first example is an orange dotted tusk fish. So Giacomo Bernardi, an evolutionary biologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, was the first researcher to catch a fish using a tool on film. While diving off the Micronesian archipelago of Palau, he spotted an orange-dotted tusk fish uncovering a clam buried in the sand by blowing water at it. Now, this is fairly unremarkable, but what happened next was the fish grasped the clam in its mouth and swam with it to a large rock around 30 yards away. The fish then, using several rapid head movements as well as well-timed releases of the shell, managed to crack open the clam so that it could be eaten. As Bernardi observed the animal, it managed to eat three clams in this way in the next 20 minutes. Now, what's neat is that everything about this really honestly turns out to be interesting. So the blowing of water, I'd I'd said it was unremarkable, but it turns out that it's actually using a novel method. Instead of blowing jets of water from its mouth, the fish actually turns away from the clam and flaps its gill slits in order to create a small pulse of water sort of the way that slamming a book causes a puff of air. And in fact, the stringing together of the various acts, uncovering the clam, picking it up, moving it to a rock, hitting it against the rock, show that the fish is planning its attack. In fact, when watching that tusk fish, Bernardi noticed that it even tried a smaller rock first before quickly realizing that wasn't going to satisfy the job. Now, of course, not all scientists support the idea that this is really tool use. And so some of the researchers are calling it tool-like use. But, you know, part of the thing uh, that Bernardi and others point out is that it's kind of hard for fish to actually manipulate a tool when they have several distinct disadvantages. For instance, they don't have grasping appendages. They're underwater, where the viscosity and density are such that using tools with sufficient velocity would also be hard. And even clasping a tool with the mouth 
would then leave prey open to being snatched up by other nearby fishy freeloaders. <laughs> and so it turns out um, that not just the orange-dotted tuskfish um, has been um, noted to do this sort of thing. And so this was the first time it had been captured on film, but similar behavior had been noted in black spot tuskfish on the Great Barrier Reef, yellowhead wrasses off the coast of Florida, and six-bar wrasses in an aquarium. And this one's actually really interesting. So the last fish belonged to zoologist Lucas Pasco of the University of Rokla in Poland, and he was apparently feeding the fish pellets that it turns out were too large for it to eat. So the fish would bring them over to a rock inside of the tank and smash them, much like the tusk fish, in order to break them apart into edible chunks. And what's interesting is he didn't even actually notice the fish doing this for some time. But once he started, once he saw it and started to look for it, he was able to reobserve the behavior on 14 other occasions. And he noted that the behavior was, quote, remarkably consistent and nearly always successful. And so even without the use of a tool, there are other fish who certainly seem to know how to hunt rather than just eat what's in front of them. So you may have heard of these fish before or seen them in a nature documentary. Um, they are called archer fish. And so they're pretty interesting because they actually have binocular vision and a large underbite, which they use to create a sort of gun barrel with their mouth. They press their tongue against a groove in the upper jaw, and by compressing the throat and mouth, they shoot a stream of water up to 10 feet out of the water in order to snag a snack of beetle or grasshopper or other uh, tasty morsel that has the misfortune to get too close to the brackish water in which the archer fish lives. Now, this may seem like simply a neat trick, but not terribly difficult or intellectually challenging. However, the archer fish's jet of water is changeable based on what the fish is aiming at, which could be anything from insects to spiders to even an infant lizard. They can also calculate the angle needed to make the prey drop into the water rather, rather than having the spray push it further away inland. And they can also vary the jet between a single jet and a series of jets like a machine gun. And one of the most compelling facts about archerfish that suggests intelligence is the fact that this ability is actually not innate. And so young archerfish cannot successfully hunt in this manner and, much, and must learn by watching other archerfish. Researchers suggest that archerfish exhibit what is called perspective taking, which means that the fish has the ability to visualize the perspective of another fish and learn from the more skilled individual. And even more impressive is that the fish learn how to calculate the distortion of light between water and air. So, you know, if you've ever seen a straw in a glass of water, you'll have seen this distortion in action. And so they're doing all of this complex uh, sort of calculating in their head and it's pretty just amazing and so the f 
final uh, example of uh, fish that are probably a lot smarter than we would once have given them credit for. A group of Atlantic cod were being held in captivity for aquaculture research. And so basically they were able to learn to use tools in order to gain food. The cod were given small colored tags that were affixed near the back of the dorsal fins so that researchers could differentiate them. Now the tank had a self-feeder attached to it, which was activated with a string that had a loop at the end. And so the cod quickly learned how to pull with their mouths the string to release the food. However, some of the fish soon learned that they could also get food by hooking the loop with the tag and swimming away. They did this through a series of trial and error tests, where they honed their uh, technique into a set of coordinated movements that allowed them to get food, importantly, a fraction of a second quicker than those using only their mouths. And so there is some idea that there may be simply a small collection of fish species who just happen to be smarter than the rest, basically a sort of set of uh, equivalent to primates in the fish world. But of course, the thing about that is, is that we keep finding new species that defy the idea that primates are the uh, primary holders of intelligence. And in fact, our next contender for the distinction of smarty pants uh, um, creature is actually a spider. So researchers are developing new experimental methods of probing the minds of spiders. So in the first two studies, Fiona Cross and Robert Jackson of the University of Canterbury in New Zealand designed an experiment where they had jumping spiders climb small viewing towers to contemplate potentially manipulated images of prey. And so what they found was that the spiders could differentiate between numbers of prey that were between one and three, but interestingly, not between those that were three versus four or three versus six, for instance. Now, how they came to this conclusion is rather ingenious. They first set up two towers with small viewing screens. At the first or starting tower, the spiders saw scenes of prey from the genus Igarides, a, a species of spider that the jumping spiders, or Portia africana, commonly eat. As the number of Agarides individuals in a single web tends to be highly variable, uh, Cross and Jackson wrote, this particular prey might especially often present Portia with situations in which numerical cognition would be relevant. So it turns out that what they did was to present an altered number of Argorides on the viewing screen of the second tower. And so they would show them a certain amount on the first tower, and then they would have them go to the second tower, and it would be a different number. 
And so what they observed was a difference in the movements and timing between the two towers that suggested that they were experiencing what the researchers referred to as an an expectancy violation. So in other words, having been primed to see a certain number of prey from looking at the first or starting tower, they were surprised and confused when the number of prey differed And so basically they stared at the second tower for a longer period um, in seeming confusion than spiders that were in a control group did. Um, And so the spiders in the control group, they had the same amount of um, spiders that they were seeing in the uh, webs. So um, (laughs) and so what the researchers note is that They proposed that while on the starting tower, the test spider loaded a representation of prey number into working memory, and that, while on the viewing tower, it compared the scene it was viewing with a representation of the scene acquired while on the starting tower. And so therefore, when it was different, they were confused and bewildered and didn't quite know what to do with themselves. Um, which is pretty interesting. And so um, they noted that the ability to do this in such a small uh, creature is quite impressive. Um, They were basically, uh, one of them, I think, basically said, you know, this is the idea that such small animals uh, can do this with such small uh, nervous systems that it could potentially be something that should uh, keep you up at night Um, just because it's so um, interesting to think about how these animals could really be doing all of these crazy interesting uh, cognitive things that we again once thought were very much only tied to humans and so it's pretty crazy to think about how there are all of these animals out there doing this um doing this uh, having these abilities to differentiate things and um without really knowing how they do it um and so that is really funny and actually there's another spider study um and so in the second spider study George Utz of the University of Cincinnati And his co-authors reported on an equally interesting study involving wolf spiders. So this team was exploring the behavior of female wolf spiders and their response to signals admitted by males that are potentially mates. And so they tested female spiders using a playback setup. And so the spiders saw on video a range of digitally altered visual signals Uh, specifically uh, linked to males' leg tuft size. Apparently that's what the ladies are looking for when they're uh, looking at their uh, spidery uh, suitors. (laughs) Um, And they also um, were either at the same time or separately, they were also um, given cues via a substrate on which the spiders were placed. So they were placed on a little membrane 
And um, in some of the uh, experiments, they were able to feel vibratory signals related to the amplitude in the males. And so in a lot of spiders, um, basically the males do a mating dance by kind of drumming um, their um, legs in a very um, rhythmic way in order to kind of impress the ladies. <laughs> um, and so Oots noted that the spiders preferred males with louder vibratory signals as well as larger visual signals, um, either when both were presented alone or together. But interestingly, they also adjusted their criteria based on the males presented. And so basically they, one time they might choose visual one time they might choose something else based on the two males um but it turns out that visual seemed to uh work out more of the time and so the authors concluded that interestingly when conflicting cues were presented alone females weighed them equally but when given a choice conflicting cues presented simultaneously Females weighed the visual signal more heavily. Thus, the presentation context affected their relative preference, suggesting that comparative evaluation of alternatives is involved. And so basically what that means is that if you had a, um, if you had a spider that was louder but not as visually awesome, they would choose the one that was more visually awesome rather than the one that was louder. Um, and so basically they are choosy and it's the, the ability to choose that is uh, what they are impressed by in that rather uh, it's not that they always choose exactly the same thing because if they always choose the same thing, that would indicate that there is a level of um, instinct. And so you would think that, oh, they're just wired to always pick the more visual male or the uh, louder male. But because they adjusted the way that they chose, that's something that's a higher level of cognition. And so, again, they concluded that this is a level of cognition that involves more than just instinct or chance. And so, yeah, tiny little spiders doing crazy uh, things <laughs> uh, that we totally didn't realize they were doing until somebody thought to look at them. Um, you know, this is still a really interesting thing where um, there's even still resistance now to the idea that animals can have higher level cognition. Um, there are still some uh, people out there who do not think that uh, we should be considering this to be cognition, that we're um, anthropomorphizing. But I think that a lot of these studies are done really well that suggests that no, we're not anthropomorphizing, that this is really what is going on. And so uh, I've got one more example here, which is from one of my favorite sets of beasties, uh, the corvids. And so uh, crows and ravens and other corvids, uh, we already know that they're very smart and that they have a social system. And in fact, um, it is in many ways akin to human social systems. And so a recent study in animal behavior reports on a raven experiment 
which used fair and unfair trades involving bread and cheese. And so, fun fact, apparently ravens love cheese. (laughs) Um, It's apparently one of their favorite things, at least in experimental uh, situations. That is what these experimenters have found. So they set up an experiment. And so the ravens were given bread and were taught that they could exchange the lower level bread. Um, Bread is not as awesome as cheese in their estimation. So they could exchange the bread for cheese with an experimenter. And so the experiment was set up that some researchers would trade the piece of bread from a raven for a piece of cheese, just like it was supposed to be. But others would take the bread and then eat the cheese themselves. (laughs) And so obviously, you know, it was an unfair trade. The raven ended up with nothing. And so they came back and tried the trading again. And so what they found was that the ravens retained the ability to discern who was a fair trader and who wasn't. And so in the wild, ravens, again, are known to have a complex system. Um, they have friendships and rivalries. Um, and so they they believe that it's important for them to be able to remember who is a good player and who is a cheater. Now, it's important to note, though, that the study didn't find a significant change in the behavior of bystander birds. Only those related directly in the exchange were able to remember which experimenters were fair traders um, and which weren't. However, seeing a trade was weakly correlated with discerning the task faster for observers. Now, this behavior called reciprocal altruism may help in explaining how cooperation evolved in ravens. And so reciprocal altruism is an evolutionary theory that suggests that pro-social interactions, things that help uh, others, um, pro-social interactions between individuals, uh, that it's evolutionarily advantageous because both parties basically end up winning. So in other words, if you rather than leaving a friend hanging and doing a task yourself, you may derive better benefit and expend less energy if you work together, which of course increases your overall evolutionary fitness because it decreases your energy expenditure. It decreases your chances of um, injury and things like that if you work with someone else. Um, And then it also, the idea is that if you then sort of maintain that relationship, then that animal or that uh, individual is more likely to help you again. Um, And so you build up this reciprocity between the two. And so one of the things that's interesting is that the ravens are actually technically taking it one step further by engaging in calculated reciprocity. And of course, that's knowing which individuals are worth dealing with and which should be ignored. And so again, these are high level cognitive functions, once believed to be the sole purview of higher order primates. Um, So yeah, it turns out that again, we are not necessarily as unique as we think we are. 
Um, <laughs> and with that fun fact, uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Um, and by the way, you can find me throughout the week on Facebook at Evidence-Based Radio. Um, and so I do try and post there throughout the week. So if you're interested in science shows during the week, you can find me there. Um, let's take a short break and then we will come back and talk about something that's been coming up a lot lately, uh, which is dinosaurs. So hang on just a second. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique. Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is on Saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m. on WXOJ LP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org. I Heart J-Rock will be playing rock music from Japan, uh, J-Rock, J-Pop, and some DK. Uh, if you like that stuff, give my show a listen, please. And also follow me on Twitter at DJ Sakura 666. Thank you. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. 
Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Okay, we are back. And so, as I said, we are going to move on to a a topic that's another favorite around here. Uh, And it's interesting because dinosaur stories seem to be popping up lately as much as space stories have been for a while. And uh, there were some space stories from this week, but I'm not going to probably get to them. Um, But I did want to talk about these... uh, Technically, only the first one is really a dinosaur story. The second one is about um, something that lived at the time of the dinosaurs. Anyways, let's get into it. So you may have heard, uh, because it's kind of been everywhere, that there is a new research paper out that suggests that the T-Rex did not, in fact, have feathers. Now, again, unfortunately, the news outlets reporting this story seem extremely eager uh, to basically... It seems that a lot of them want to return the T-Rex to a picture that most closely, uh, more closely matches that of the Jurassic Park model. Um, And so they failed to really read the study carefully or to uh, sort of get counter um, opinions. And so, again, uh, if they had read it closely, they would see that it has um, some pretty large flaws. Um, And so one of the large flaws that others have um, suggested is uh, a conceptual one. And so basically, they use an argument to explain away why the ancestors of T-Rexes were some of the earliest dinosaurs to be found with feathers. And so they suggest that as the dinosaurs grew bigger, evolution would have favored them losing feathers so that the animal would not overheat in warm environments and... Uh, basically, they compare the T-Rex to modern animals like elephants, rhinos, and hippos who have very sparse hair. But the thing is, is that feathers, unfortunately, don't have the same insulation profile as hair. And in fact, they can actually help to cool off larger animals. So for instance, um, not that it's nearly as big as a T-Rex, but all of the large birds like ostriches, uh, they haven't lost their feathers on their body, uh, despite the fact that they, for instance, live in sub-Saharan Africa. And so the other major issue is that the samples of skin discovered are all quite small, and they come from various parts of the animal that may indeed not have had feathers. So most modern conceptions of the T-Rex and other large members of the Tyrannosaur family suggest that they would have probably had feathers, however, not on their whole body. So they suggest that they might have had a crest around the base of their head, as well as feathers along the the back. And this is actually a place from which skin samples were not found. Um... And so the modern conception doesn't consider them to have been covered in um, feathers like a modern bird. And of course, when I say feathers in dinosaurs, they wouldn't have looked like true feathers that are on birds now. They would have been more sort of filamentous, uh, fuzzy feathers. So 
True Feathers with Shafts are a much later adaptation found in True Birds. And so that kind of segues us into this way more exciting story, um, which is that a piece of amber um, has been found. Well, it was found several years ago, but it's been studied and described now, um, which contains key parts of a hundred million year old baby bird. Now, some have been saying that the body is nearly complete, quote unquote, it's that's a little bit of a hyperbole as well, but it's still pretty impressive. The head, neck, right wing, tail, and feet of an Ananti ornithonine hatchling uh, was discovered in the stone. And so uh, Ryan McKellar of the Royal Saskatchewan Museum in Regina, uh, in Canada, <laughs> uh, a member of the team that described the find notes that it's the most complete and detailed view we've ever had. Seeing something this complete is amazing. It's just stunning. And so the find is the latest in a series of stunning uh, insects, animals and plants that have come out of amber mines in northern Myanmar. And so you've most likely seen Jurassic Park, uh, so I probably don't have to tell you that amber is the hardened remains of tree sap um, from conifer trees. But what I do uh, probably need to tell you, though you've probably heard it before, uh, that despite finding the well-preserved specimen, there is no hope of discovering DNA from the remains. The flesh, fleshy though it may still seem, is not really flesh, but rather uh, has broken down into carbon. Um, and so that kind of replaces the flesh much like a, um, like a fossil. And so you still have all the fine details. You even have some of the coloration, though in this case, it was just kind of a brown bird, nothing very special um, in that respect, the, the coloring. Um, but there's no real flesh left there to uh, sample. And um, while it's very interesting and cool, it's not a true bird, or at least bird as we know it today. It actually belongs to a line of birds referred to as opposite birds that lived alongside the ancestors of modern birds, but actually died out along with the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. And so they're called opposite birds because they had a socket and ball joint in their shoulder rather than the modern bird's ball and socket joint, which, you know, that's why it says opposite. That's why they're called opposite. They also had claws on the ends of their wings and had beakless mouths that actually featured teeth. They do note, however, though, that at at the time, uh, the ancestors of modern birds hadn't yet developed beaks either. They would have still had teeth. Um, the specimen sh found shows that the bird had a full set of wing feather of wing flight feathers and was already growing out its tail feathers. And um, so it had all of that. But interestingly, the body itself mostly lacked feathers. And so while there's no definitive theory on why these opposite birds died out with the dinosaurs, researchers suspect it might have been lack of parental care, uh, which is, of course, inferred from the fact that the chicks were born uh, with mostly full flight feathers. And so they figured that the eggs would most likely have hatched on the ground 
and then the birds would have had to climb uh, trees, making them susceptible to getting caught in amber-forming tree sap. Um, and so the research was published in the journal Gondwana Research, which is a great name for a journal. Um, and as I noted, the specimen belongs uh, was found several years ago. It belongs to a museum in China. Um, and so when they sort of figured out what they had, they called in Lida Jing of the Chinese of the China University of Geosciences in Beijing to lead the team in exploring this incredible specimen. Okay. So speaking of exploring specimens, <laughs> Gizmodo has a new report on a uh, interesting and really exciting new technique scientists are using to image what is inside of coprolites. Now, coprolites is a fancy term for fossilized feces, but don't let that fact distract you from what's really important here, that coprolites are actually a veritable treasure trove of potential information about the dietary habits and health of the creatures that deposited them. Now, because they're high in phosphates, they tend to preserve parts such as muscle, soft tissue, hair, and parasites that are otherwise lost in the fossilization process. So for years, scientists studying the contents of coprolites were forced to cut them into small slices, which were then examined using different types of microscopes. As you can imagine, this is not an ideal situation. The ideal situation would be a to discover a way to see inside the rock without having to damage it at all. Now, using CT scanners uh, has helped to see some of what's going on inside of some coprolites, um, and it does indeed preserve the specimen intact. However, the resolution of, of CAT scans is actually quite poor. Um, and so a new report in the journal Scientific Reports uh, by Martin Quarmström um, and his team from Sweden's Uppsala University discussed a new and better option. They took two specimens of 230 million year old fossilized feces from a collection in Poland and took them to the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble, France. There, they subjected the two samples to a process called propagation phase contrast synchrotron microtomography, which is another very fancy word that translates to basically striking the sample with extremely strong x-rays, much stronger than can be achieved by a CAT scanner, which then produces a much sharper three-dimensional image of the remains inside the coprolite. And so the highly detailed images allowed the researchers to see in one specimen the remains of three beetle species, including two wing cases and the part of a leg. And in the other coprolite, there was the remains of crushed clamshells and half of a fish, half or so of a fish. Um, and so that was particularly exciting because they believe that that coprolite was actually originally deposited by a lungfish whose fossilized remains were discovered nearby. We have so far only seen the top of the iceberg, Kornfenstrom said in a press release. 
The next step will be to analyze all types of coprolites from the same fossil locality in order to work out who ate what or whom and understand the interactions within the ecosystem. So that is super exciting because there is a ton of stuff that we can potentially learn about um, these animals through, again, through these coprolites because they preserve such interesting things. Um, and in fact, even today, um, if you are someone who is trying to track animals, a lot of modern researchers will actually use fresh uh, feces to learn more about animals. Uh, especially bears and things like that, um, gorillas, animals that are hard to find, you can often um, get a lot of information from their feces rather than having to actually track them down. So being able to do this with animals that lived millions of years ago is pretty darn exciting. Okay, so now we have uh, come to something interesting about plants. And so we are now going to talk about the idea of the plant's ability to think. And so we've talked about the ability of non-human animals to engage in behaviors that once were thought exclusive to humans. But what about plants? Now, before we get into the latest research, I want to make a recommendation. Um, and it's one that I've actually made before. Um, if you haven't seen it, I deck definitely recommend tracking down a copy of the documentary, What Plants Talk About. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating look at the world of plants that is totally stuck with me. Uh, and I saw it a couple of years ago and I'm still, you know, I'm still occasionally will be like, oh my God, you need to see this, uh, this amazing documentary. Um, one of the most mind-blowing things I saw in it was um, about wild tobacco plants and um, how they actually change the shape of their flowers based on uh, what uh, pollinator they are trying to attract. And the idea that they can do that is just so mind-blowing to me that I just am like, I don't even understand how that's a thing. Um but anyways, let's talk about this new study from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And it suggests that seeds use a kind of analog to a brain in order to determine the best time to germinate. Now, this, isn't, this is not to say that there is anything approaching an actual brain with neurons and ganglia and such in a seed. But rather, plants are just like humans in the sense that they have to think and make decisions the same way we do, said study co-author George Bassel, a plant biologist at the University of Birmingham in England. And so it turns out that they make these decisions uh, using these decisions by interpreting a cascade of hormone signals in much the same way as the human brain. And so in the human brain, there are small groups of specialized nervous system cells that are used in decision-making. And so they note that within a dormant seed, there is a very small number of cells where the decision is made. These cells act in a similar way to the cells inside the nervous system. And um, that was Basil talking to Live Science. And so learning more about how the plants do this, 
uh, might actually have some interesting practical applications. For instance, it would allow it could allow scientists to create seeds that all germinate at the same time or that germinate in such a way as to make them more resistant to climate change. Now, seeds are obviously a very important part of a plant's survival. Uh, they are not only part of the plant, they are the only part of the plant that can both travel large distances and can also determine to some extent the timeline for when it will germinate, which is what um, this is talking about. And so it's the second part again that is helped out by the brain of the seed. So the researchers found that the seeds of the Thale cress plant uh, it turns out that, that there are two main hormones that seem to accumulate in high concentrations in the tip of the embryonic root. Um, so the first one is gibberellin, um, or GA, and that is the hormone that tries to tell the seed to germinate, while abscicic uh, acid or ABA uh, tells the cell to stay dormant. And so clumps of cells are separated by some amount of distance. And so they produce one or the other hormone. And so when conditions outside are right for the seed to germinate, the levels of GA will rise above those of ABA, causing the seed to sprout. Now, what's interesting is that the hormone levels fluctuate and levels of GA go up when the seed when the seed notices a fluctuation in temperatures. And so the researchers speculate that this may help uh, the seed figure out how far down it is in the soil. Uh, for instance, the closer to the surface, the more uh, the temp temperature will fluctuate. Or that temperature fluctuations are more common at change of season, which is when um, plants tend to germinate. And so what's really interesting is the fact that both plants and animals have developed very similar systems for handling information, despite the fact that their common ancestor was a single-celled algae-like organism that lived around 1.6 billion years ago. And so that is a seriously neat example of convergent evolution. And again, I'm not saying that they're uh, doing things exactly the same. They're obviously not. Um, they're using very different tactics uh, in the terms of the cells. Um, but it's just, it's really interesting. So for instance, in the brain, the um, clumps of cells that use the two hormones are a little bit further apart generally, because um, for that one, in the human brain, they don't want... Uh, or, you know, the idea is that it's probably set up that way. Um, it's kind of hard to, you know, talk about that in sort of not uh, uh, design terms. But um, what they suspect is that they've been that they're set up in such a way that there's enough room between them that there isn't any kind of crossing uh of signals that the there's no noise that gets in the way that uh, will be interpreted by the brain just by mistake. Um, and so, um, but in the seed, it seems to be that they're a little bit closer and it's not as um, important to keep them apart because there actually is that fluctuation and um, they uh, sort of go back and forth between the two states 
Um, but usually, you know, keeping more ABA, telling the seed to stay dormant until it's really time. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of other crazy things that plants are getting up to that um, I didn't necessarily, uh, there was a, there's a story um, that I was reading about the other day uh, called Our Trees Vegetarian. And um, there is a good argument f to be made that the answer to that is actually no, um, because um, trees are supported by huge systems of mycelium, which is um, fungus. And that fungus, uh, it basically uh, breaks down a whole bunch of things, including lots of uh, critters that are in the soil. And so then, because there's a nutrient exchange between the mycelium and the tree roots, that there's an argument, a fairly uh, good argument to be made that in the end, trees aren't technically strictly vegetarian. Um, not that there's a huge, you know, it's not like they're carnivorous and they're going to be uh, trying to actually digest animals on purpose um, themselves. Unless there are things like, you know, they're not trees, but, you know, there are some plants that do that, obviously, like pitcher plants and uh, Venus flytraps and things like that, that have actually literally uh, integrated eating uh animal products and insects and things like that into their um, system, which is fascinating in and of itself. But um, yeah, so there's a lot of things about plants that we didn't used to really know that we're really starting to find out. And so let's move on, though, to this next story. It's a few weeks old, but it's just delightfully odd. And so I thought that I should share it with you. And so apparently researchers had assumed, or at least some researchers had assumed, that aardvarks, which are weird, but also in my opinion, adorable nocturnal creatures that make their home in the deserts of sub-Saharan Africa, don't drink water or didn't drink water. Now, it's not that they didn't need water. All life on Earth needs water. They just assumed that they got it from the food they ate. Um, and so what they assumed was that they got it from eating food and digesting it and breaking it down. And so basically, it turns out that it's really that no one had ever really taken the time to look at all of the evidence and see whether or not people had noticed them drinking actual water as opposed to, again, deriving it from the termites, ants, and a rare type of fruit that is called aardvark cucumber. Of course, aardvark cucumber is coincidentally the name of my new indie band. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, it's an old joke. Anyways, it turns out that these weird beasties are rather hard to study because they are intensely secretive. And they apparently spend most of their time sensibly avoiding the heat by sleeping the day away in burrows that can be up to 10 meters deep. Now, unfortunately, they also have another strike against them when it comes to studying them. They do not have the tapetum lucidum, and that is the layer of relative reflective tissue in the eyes that researchers and others uh, use to detect animals in the dark. Um, so it's, you know, the, the layer that flashes when you sort of shine a light in the dark and you see flashes, usually deer or something like that around here. 
uh, they do not have that. And so they are unfortunately not exactly easy to study. <laughs> this is what I am saying. They are not easy to study. However, there are studies out there, and it's those studies that Graham Curley, a zoologist at Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, and colleagues, used to finally dispel the myth once and for all. They found multiple reports of aardvarks drinking in the wild, including four photographs and a video. And they reported their findings in the African Journal of Ecology last month. Now, of course, not everyone was surprised. For instance, zookeepers who work with captive animals have long seen them drinking water. Though Amelia Clark, a wildlife biologist at the Royal Veterinary College in London, notes that captive aardvarks are often fed a dry diet and therefore can't truly model the behavior of wild animals. Now, of course, there's a larger consideration here as about these aardvarks. You know, the fact of whether or not they drink water is interesting, but um, the sort of more important takeaway here is that aardvarks are not technically fairly high on the list of animals that, pink, that people think about when they think about con conservation. Clark, for instance, notes that they're at the bottom of the totem pole because they aren't keystone species like pandas or koalas that everyone thinks are cute and fuzzy. And unfortunately, that's a problem because they are under pressure from climate change, habitat destruction, and ecosystem destruction. And unfortunately, like many unsung hero animals that are also under pressure that are not as amazingly... Uh, photogenic as panda bears, they are actually rather important to their ecosystem. Their burrows help plant growth and are used by warthogs, insects, and even humans who occasionally need to shelter in the desert. And so um, I definitely would suggest that they can be just as cute as more fuzzy animals. Uh, people just need to get a bit of imagination. And uh, so definitely this is a great example of an animal that people don't necessarily tend to think about at all. Um, think about it. When was the last time you really contemplated the aardvark? Um, but nonetheless, they're under pressure just as much as the more photogenic animals like uh, pandas and koalas and uh, all of the fuzzy, happy animals. Um, a lot of these animals are not uh, well-known or well-liked even, but they do have really important uh, places in the ecosystem that we should be defending. All right, that is me for tonight. Uh, do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. Hi, my name is